looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Make Money Make Sense. I'm your host, Dante Belmonte, with my co-host, DJ Smith. DJ, welcome back. How are we doing? Great, Dante. Great to be with you. Glad to have you here, as always. This week, we kind of shake things up a little different. This is our first episode of our deal deep dive. We have Abbas Muhammad on, and we basically dissect a deal with him. And we're going to start doing this with a lot of guests that we have on the show. Is Feedback I'm getting from listeners is they want to hear the nitty gritty. They want to get into the numbers and understand how these successful operators are doing deals. And we definitely get into that today. Yeah, and this will also help passive investors uh, for those interested in investing in deals. Uh, it gives you a sense of some of the criteria that, it, that are looked at by the sponsors, uh, it, as well as uh, what some of the returns look like and help you get familiar with the terminology and such. So this is a great idea by Dante to do the deep dive. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. We definitely, you know, dig in and get a lot of info into this, you know, short hour of an episode. So really happy with what we're able to accomplish. Thank you guys for listening in. As always, head over to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, write us a review, as it really does help out the show. And it's a way to give back to us for free for the content we give to you guys for free. So we greatly appreciate it. With that said, let's welcome in Abbas. Abbas, welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you? I'm doing well. I appreciate you having me back on, Dante. Heard this yeah. that we're going to dissect a deal. Is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Always a pleasure having you on. We had you on in episode 61, I believe, uh, earlier in the year. You did a great job. You've been making some headway since we last spoke. So we're, we're having you back on into a uh, new session, I guess you could call it, of our podcast called The Deal Deep Dive. And we're going to dive deep into the deals that everyone is doing. So you recently just So, so Dante, on. the name makes sense then. Deep dive and we're going to dive deep into deals. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to do a lot of that with DJ you know, and Dante. The ABCs uh, of commercial right. multifamily syndication. Exactly. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> so Abbas, you recently closed on King's Landing, which is a 64-unit deal in uh, basically the Dallas-Fort Worth market. If you want to go ahead and just kind of tell us a quick high level of the deal and, you know, we'll just take it from A to Z on what went on with this deal and what you guys are doing with it. Yeah, so it's uh, it's a 64 unit deal out in uh, the Dallas market, DFW. It was uh, it's 40 minutes south of Dallas, and that market, you know, is phenomenal. It has extremely high uh, median household income. The median house price is really high there as well. Rents have been growing super, super quickly over the past year, actually 9.5% just over the past 12 months. So it's just an incredible, incredible market. And that's kind of one of the main things I focus on. I would I would much rather be in a strong market uh, than anything else. So that's kind of my top priority. And that market fit all of our criteria. And it's, you know, 64 unit, it's, it's our first deal. And we're actually, you know, we closed on it last month and uh, we're doing really, really well already. I love to hear that. And yeah. market is a great spot to start because you got to know your market before you start looking at properties. And that's what DJ and I did. We, you know, we honed it on some markets we really liked. So how did you and your group, and we'll get into who your group is and all that fun stuff in a little bit here, but how did you guys lock in or hone into this market that you guys chose? 
Yeah, so I chose this market mainly because I work with the Brad Stomach coaching, mentoring, and they're based in the Dallas market. I, we know I've done my research on the Dallas market. I was actually interested in the Dallas market prior to signing up for this program. But then once I signed up, I found that, you know, they have all the contacts there. A uh, vast majority of the students are there. So it just made it a lot easier to just go with that market. But here's one thing to to kind of keep in mind is that, you know, the DFW market or most markets out there are huge. I mean, the DFW market is seven and a half million people. And just because the, the overall market is great doesn't mean that every sub-market within it is, is going to meet that criteria. So, you know, we chose that market, but then I was very specific about which little sub-markets within DFW I'm actually interested in going after. Okay. And you mentioned, uh, I believe it was Brad Sumrock. Is that the, the mentorship program you're going through? Correct. Okay. And how did you find them? How, how do they pertain to this deal? How are they assisting you if they are in any form? Absolutely. So, I mean, I'll tell you this. Um, I had no knowledge of multifamily at all prior to signing up. I, you know, obviously I am a real estate broker. I've built my uh, real estate knowledge in that aspect, but I didn't really know much about multifamily. And so when I first started thinking about mu- buying multifamily, my first thought process was, look, I'll buy, you know, duplex, fourplex, whatever, six units, eight units at a time. Then I signed up for this program. The scale because- method, right? Exactly. Exactly. I, I found him on YouTube. They were talking about how you could buy 60 units plus. And that just kind of changed my mind completely. I was like, wait, hold on. Is that doable for a guy like myself? So I signed up back in February and it's just, it's just been incredible. I mean, I've learned so much. I've learned a ton. I've been able to think much bigger than I ever thought was possible in such a short amount of time. Because you get to hang out with others who are buying 200 units, who are buying 250 units, 1,000 units. So it just kind of unlocks what you could actually think about and, and helps you go after much bigger deals. Now, the other thing about, about it that I liked is that, you know, you have a bunch of different people that you could lean in on if you need any help, right? I mean, there's literally over like a thousand students. Some of them have done thousands of units. So anytime you need help, you just contact somebody out there and, and they're more than happy to walk you through stuff. Yeah, I love that. That's, that is great. So talking, getting back towards the deal, how'd you guys first find this deal? Was it on yeah. market? Was it off market? Was direct to seller, broker? How'd you guys find the deal? Yeah, so it was on market. It was listed back in uh, January and uh, just sent out to a bunch of people, obviously distributed. And I remember when uh, it was TJ actually who found it, my partner, he, he was the person that found it. When they first found it, there were multiple people going after the deal. The seller had multiple offers at the time. But, um, you know, the seller was a little bit difficult to work with. And so after a couple of months of delaying things around, um, other people walked away. And then TJ, my partner, he just kept following up with the, with, the, with the agent over and over and over again until one day the agent was like, you know what, go ahead and revise a few of the things you've made in your offer. Even though it was a lower offer than the initial offers they had, it was like, just revise the deposit, revise a few things here and there, and uh, we'll, we'll get it accepted. So that's kind of what ended up happening. Okay. So, so w- 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 I'm sorry, Dante. It, it, it sounds like that there was, a, did this all happen during the process of them accepting the bids or did they uh, accept an offer from somebody else? And because the seller was difficult, it fell through. Yeah, no. So actually, no, they did not get the, to the chance of accepting an offer. They were still kind of going back and forth. But I think what happened is that you know, they just kind of went back and forth for too long, too much, and people just kind of gave up on the deal. And that's one of the things I learned, in, you know, already in, in real estate is that you have to be persistent because there's a lot of competition. And if you're not persistent, if you're not following up and going after it pretty hard, you're, you're going to end up losing out. 
And so yeah, that's no, what happened with the other good. people is that they just, you know, they decided to give up a little too early. Yeah. And one of the guys we had on here, Bo Beery, he uh, actually says how people submit backup offers or backup purchase and sale agreements. So if right. something does fall through, we're like, okay, we have this full offer right over here that's already written up in the purchase and sale agreement. You know, we can negotiate that. So that's always Absolutely. good. Talk about TJ real quick. So how did you guys become partners and how did you guys decide to partner up on this deal? He's obviously got some experience behind him because I've, I've read up on him a little bit. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, he's done like five deals as, as a JV by himself before this. Um, it's funny, we, we ended up, uh, the first time we talked was just on the phone. We hit it off really, really well. And that's, you know, we, we knew at that time that maybe we want to do something at some point because we just thought alike and we we're very similar in many different ways. So anyway, what happened is this, TJ and I are very different and and what we you know bring to the table he's a lot more of the you know he's an engineer he was an architect i'm sorry and so he's got a lot of uh, real estate background so he he's great at asset management i am in california i'm on the other side of of the country obviously and so what i'm good at is i'm good at investor relations systems i'm good at you know talking to people being on camera doing all these sort of things that he's just not comfortable with and he's like you know what abbas i will do the asset management i'll do the work on the ground you do this other part you keep people informed you stay in touch with people you help us out with the investor relations part and then we'll just form a team on this deal and, and go after it and that's kind of what, what happened awesome and how yeah. about uh kp or key principal was he the kp on the deal or was that someone else yeah, so we actually had another KP, Sean and Terry Griffith. Uh, they also went with us uh, on this deal, and they were great. You know, the thing about about this is that um, they were they were not just interested in being KPs; they're interested in actually learning about the process. So they said, "Look, anytime you guys need help with anything at all on the ground, um, even though we're not GPs on this deal, we're happy to help on this." And we also have a third partner, Juan Cordoba, on this as well. You know, he's also a GP on this deal. Yep. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So kind of getting back to the deal in the nitty gritty. First thing I'm assuming when you guys found the deal, you guys underwrote it, you looked at rent roll T12, all that fun mm -hmm. stuff and started looking right. at it. What are you guys using? We get the big question all the time. What are you using to underwrite? Do you guys have your own spreadsheet? Do you have someone else's spreadsheet? Do you have a program? What do you use? Yeah. So the first thing I, I personally look at with any deals is I look at these, I look at the submarket and I like looking at city-data.com to, to select that submarket. A lot of people use, uh, yep. a, yeah, a lot of people use one mile, for example, income to me, like one mile income that I see on the OM is completely irrelevant because you could cross a highway and it could be a completely different market, completely different demographics. So the thing I like about city data is that you could select that specific block where your property is actually located. And so some of the things we look for is I look for the income. It has to be over 35000 minimum median household income. Then the next thing I look for is I look on Zillow. I'm trying to figure out what the median home price is, right? If the median home price is, say, $100,000, then you're going to have high turnover because people will end up just going out there and buying houses constantly instead of renting forever. So I want the median house uh, the median house price to be over 150 And then I have access to CoStar. I want the sub-market, you know, like in this case, it's Mansfield. I want the sub-market to have been growing at a minimum of 2% or higher a year. And I want the forecasted rent growth to be 3% or higher right now. So I look at a bunch of different things before we even go in and underwrite the deal. Okay, understood. So you'll, you'll look at those uh, market metrics, so to speak, population, demographic, all that fun stuff. You're using some good Absolutely. tools. We use city data. We use uh, 
uh, a justice map, some other things to look at, you know, neighborhoods, household incomes, uh, all of it, crime data as well. And we put that right. into the funnel. Um, but and to, then answer you... your, to answer your question, by the way, I'm sorry, on, on that is uh, then we use uh, Brad Summark has an analyzer tool that we use to analyze deals. But there, I mean, there's a bunch out there and they pretty much all do the same job. Uh, you know, they plug in the numbers, they analyze the deal and you have to be creative to make the deals work, of course. But having said that, once we analyze the market and we are interested in that market, it fits our criteria. The next thing we look for is, is um, you know, things like age 1975 plus. Um, and we look at just a bunch of different things to see if these deals fit the bill or not. But I would say the most important for us really is, is the market, because if you're in a bad market, you could have an amazing property and you, you're never going to do well because you're going to be fighting, you know, you're going to be fighting against the market, which I don't think ever goes well. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Some of the uh, stats that you guys use, um, yeah. I came through the fortune builders program. And when they teach uh, their rental program and they do have a commercial program as well as a syndication add-on that you can do, um, they also look at, and I'll just add some other things that people may want to consider. Uh, so they would agree with uh, the growing population. Uh, but the other thing they look at is uh, what it, uh, the gross metro product uh, and there is a way to look that up. They, they also look for growth there. They're looking to see one to 3% in that area. Uh, but a lot of those factors are very similar to what they teach, as well as uh, making sure you have uh, a reasonable percentage of renters who want to be at least at the national average. Absolutely. And I think a lot of them, a lot of these things we look at are related to each other, meaning you could look at population growth. And if you see a high population growth, that also usually corresponds to a high you know, job increases and a high, you know, higher income happening, right? So, so these are kind of all related. And if you see, you know, one that doesn't fit the criteria, maybe that's okay if everything else is the criteria. But normally, if one of these criteria are, you know, are not met, it's because you've got a bad market or you've got some other situation where every other criteria you're going to look up is also not going to meet that that bill. Yeah, and I'm going to hit you with a few here real quick. So sure. we talked about unit count; it's 64 units. What about unit mix and vintage of the property? Yeah, so, you know, right now I, I only look at 1975 plus mainly because uh, when you sell that property in five years, if you're buying a 1965, well, that property is going to be five years older and it's going to continuously be hard to sell. Plus, I, I spoke with a lot of people that have been doing this for a long time. One of the things I've learned is that, you know, you could underwrite a property and it looks nice on paper if it's 1965 or whatever, but the reality is there's constant things that are going wrong with the property, constant repairs that are happening. And so you could underwrite an expense of say $100,000 a year, but the reality is the expense is much higher than that because you, you get all these one-time events that are really not one-time events because you have a one-time event reoccurring every single year. I call those the, the, the CapEx recycling bin. You just keep putting right. money in and then something else happens and you just keep bringing it in and out, in and out. And, and that's what happens yeah. with older properties. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I'm, I'm focusing on 1975 plus. For that reason. Now, that doesn't mean there are not people out there that make deals with older properties. I mean, you know, but that's that's okay. That's not my my target. So this asset was 1975 then? It was 1975 and they had another section that was built in 1985. Okay. All right. Very good. And then what about uh, unit mix? How many two twos, one ones or whatever the unit mix was? Yeah. So, I, you know, I really don't focus on that a whole lot, um, to be honest with you. Uh, 
but I would say, you know, you do want obviously a good mix in there. And uh, if it's like, sometimes I see properties that have, you know, 90% one bedroom, one bath, that kind of would scare me away. Right. But if right. it's, if it's generally a, you know, a decent mix, then I, I'm not going to pay too much attention to it. Okay. Understood. It, purchase price. So what was the overall purchase price of this project and what was the uh, price per door? Yeah, so on this deal, they were uh, we got under contract at six point five million, and so it's a hundred and one thousand dollars per door. Okay, and it's that crazy because now we're underwriting other properties, and we it seems like we can't find anything below a hundred thirty five, hundred forty, hundred fifty per door that matches the same market criteria. Oh, there you go. That means like you got a deal. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And what class would you say this deal is? It you know B, C, D class. Talk about the actual property is what class you think it is and the neighborhood. Cause a lot of times people yeah. are, you know, they're acquiring C class deals and B class neighborhoods. What did you say for this deal is? I would say it's definitely a C plus uh, property also in a C plus neighborhood. The thing I like about this deal is that when I went out to see it, one of the things that kind of stood out to me in that market is that there were job sites literally all over right next to the property. Like you could walk to, at least 20, 20 employment locations and big, big employment locations. So it's, it's incredible in that aspect. Then the other thing is we put our comps on, on the, on the GPS and we went out to drive the comps. The nearest comp is like, it's like six, seven minutes away and it's completely full. And that was pretty much the only one that we saw in that, in that vicinity. So there was not a lot of, um, not a lot of other options that people have. The occupancy on this deal was 98%. Right now we've acquired it. And the property management says every single day they get at least between three to five people that are that are calling or walking in on the property asking if there's an available unit. And that's again, that's just because of how many employment locations there are nearby. And then you know, you just don't have much to compete with. Now, when you say comps, I'm assuming you're talking rental comps. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Other properties, yep. So what are your criteria? I see a lot of offering memorandums, for example, that'll come out and I'll see a you know 1975 property that has a 2010 comp and I'm saying to myself, uh -uh, <laughs> right. So yeah. uh, talk, talk to me about comps. And I've actually done uh, quite a bit of research on this and you don't yeah. find uh, a lot of great guidance out there. In fact, Dante and I are working on a blog right now that would describe our process a little better. So tell me about yours. Yeah, I'd love to hear that actually when you put it out. So it's interesting because I agree. I see the same thing. 1975 property being compared to a 2010. Now you got to realize, obviously, the people who are renting at a 2010 property are not the same people that are renting at a 1975. So what we look at is we look at a few things. The The main thing, the first thing I look at is, you know, again, I see this very commonly in, in multifamily, especially as people focus on, oh, this is this comp is within one mile. But really, I, I I feel like that's kind of irrelevant. Uh, what I focus on is what comps do I see in the exact um, vicinity of that area, right? So I want to look at those comps first. And I try to stay within a similar vintage range, right? So if it's a 1975 property, I'm probably going to compare it to anything between, say, 1965, maybe up to 1990. And even that's kind of you know, a stretch. The other thing we look at is we look at the size of the deal. If I have a 64 unit deal, I'm not going to compare it to a 200 unit deal because that 200 unit deal probably has a gym, probably has a pool and has all these other amenities that we just don't have. So I try to keep it very close. If I can't find anything, um, 
within that range, then I will slowly expand my criteria of what I consider a comp, but then I would adjust down in rent. So if I'm looking at another deal that doesn't exactly match my criteria because it's the only other deal I have, then I will you know, scale down what that rent would be if it was at my property. Where are you pulling this data from? CoStarApartments.com, where are you getting this comp data from? That's a big one. Yeah, we found CoStar to not be that accurate for that, to be honest with you. Agreed. So what, what we do is uh, we go on apartments.com, we go on Zillow, and then finally, if the numbers make sense and we're at a stage where we want to get more data, then we start actually calling these other places and asking you know, what the rents are going for and, and you know, what the activity is and if they have any open, open uh, apartments. Yeah, I mean, for the price that people are paying for CoStar, you think it'd have more accurate and better data. But you know, right. for the property we're under contract on, we had the, the uh, CoStar report pulled, and it was it was all over the place, and the data oh, wasn't yeah. accurate. And we even knew the property numbers and what was going on. And the only thing right. was accurate was the price it sold for X amount of years ago when the you know the the last purchaser bought it. Right. And so I, at the at the end of the day, basically the key I think that you said in there is. You're taking data from other apartments that you're looking at, right? And you're you're basically uh, applying the art of uh, the art of project management, or excuse me, comps to it, right? It's it's not an exact science. It's not like you're gonna look this data up. You're gonna find six other properties that are 64 units, 1975 build in the same neighborhood. Right. <laughs> right. It never happens. It never happens. It, it never happens. So, it, and that's, I, I think what we've done and how we've adjusted, we've said, look, instead of just eliminating all this other data that doesn't fit our comp, our comp criteria, let's use it all, but we need to bookend it and adjust it. So right. if we are comparing to that 2010 product, with a lot of amenities, we'll set that at the upper end of the scale, knowing there's no way we can come close to that. Right. And that's kind of the art of setting comps. And it just goes on from there, depending on how close the properties match, where they're located and what they're charging for rent. I agree. And I think you, you just have to be a little creative. Like you said, it's not a science, it's more of an art. Yep. And but but you have to also be realistic, right? So like you said, if it's a 2010 property, I'm not going to go in and say, well, you know, I could fix up the units and then I, I'm going to get the same rents that the 2010 properties because they're different. They have different features. Yeah. And, and maybe the one exception is where, uh, you know, you're completely refurbishing a building, right? You're right. taking maybe an, an older product and you're gutting it and creating essentially a, a new product with that older look. Absolutely. But I, don't, I know we don't do that. <laughs> right. And so DJ usually leads the charge for our comps. So he makes some very good points and something, you know, we've discovered and Abbas, you said it pretty well yourself is we're not going to take a 64 unit and compare it with a 264 unit because odds are they're going to have a pool, a gym, you know, a fitness center. Uh, or I said that already, but an office space or anything like that, we're not going to have that. So maybe if they're charging $1,300 a month, but we are, you know, same vintage, but we're smaller and don't have those amenities. Maybe we know we can only charge 1150 a month because we have to take 150 off because we don't have that gym, that pool, Absolutely. that, you know, entertainment area. So that's very important with the comps. Something I want to get into, and we can talk about, you know, entry versus exit as well, is that cap rate. So I want to know, A, what do you guys believe that market cap rate for that sub market is for purchasing like assets? 
B, what are you guys purchasing your cap rate at? And then what do you guys predict your exit cap rate to be? And, you know, B, I know I'm shooting a lot at you right here, Abbas, but, you know, be clear with your entry cap rate. Is it your T12 in line, everything the same? Are you guys adjusting for uh, taxes and, and future? How do you guys look at that? Yeah, so cap rates right now in the DFW market for, you know, a C plus property, let's say, or a, or a B minus property, it's, it's right now at probably at four and a half, right? Um, and then whenever we're buying a property, what we're doing, or we're underwriting a property, we're, we're adjusting 0.75 to one one point higher, right? On, when, on the exit cap rate, because you just, you know, you want to be safe. You never know what's going to happen to the market. And you also want to leave some room for error in case, you know, things kind of don't follow, follow through with the business plan. So that's one of the things we focus on in terms of uh, adjusting for taxes. I mean, especially if you're buying in Texas, that's that's crucial. Otherwise, the taxes are going to kill you because uh, taxes go up significantly at purchase. And so we adjust for taxes. And, you know, what we do for taxes is one of the things that's important is you have to um, understand that taxes don't go up 100% just off of the first year. Usually we divide it up onto two or three years. And so that's that's kind of how we underwrite that. Okay. So when you guys are looking at your purchase cap rate, you don't just say, oh, we purchased at a five cap. Um, you adjust it for what the taxes are going to be, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we are underwriting a deal, we have to adjust for year one new taxes because we're not going to have the same taxes as the last person did. And also same thing with insurance and just a bunch of other things. I mean, I've noticed that whenever we're underwriting properties, we, we end the cost per door ends up going much higher than what the pre previous owner would have had it at. Okay. Understood. So what yeah. was that uh, purchase cap rate on this property that you purchased it at? Yeah. So this property, we actually ended up purchasing at a five cap. Okay. And then it, from what you were just telling us, your exit cap rate is about uh, 75 base points or hundred basis points higher than what you purchased it at. So what are you right. guys assuming for in your exit cap rate? On this one, we're assuming a 5.8. So we added 0.8 to it. Okay. No, I, yeah. I think that's great because it's important. A lot of times syndicators that, that exit cap rate can juice your returns, your uh, internal rate oh, return yeah. very aggressively. And I think that's something that's super important. If, you know, if you purchase at a five and you said, okay, we're going to sell this thing at a four and a half, 5%, you're going to be in the high twenties all day for your IRR. Oh, yeah. But every deal is going to work. <laughs> exactly. Every deal is going to work. But you, you, you said something really good there. In case the business plan doesn't go according to plan, you kind of have right. a cushion because odds are where these markets are going, we're probably going to see the cap rates stay the same, if not maybe compress a little bit more. But you never know if interest rates start to do increase a little bit within the next few years. And if you guys plan to sell, you know, whatever year that is, yeah, you have that cushion. If so, if you did, and I always tell people, you know, I tell DJ too, listen, this is worst case scenario. If Absolutely. we can sell at the same uh, cap rate we're purchasing at, which is, you know, roughly a five on the property we're under contract for, it's going, it's going to be a home run deal, you know, under promise over deliver all day. Absolutely. And, and no, and I completely agree with you. I mean, personally, in terms of cap rates, I think they're going to keep compressing. There's a bunch of money going into, uh, into commercial real estate, but I'm not willing to make a bet on that with other people's money. Right. So that's, that's why we got to be a little conservative with, with that. Yeah. And, and like I said, I appreciate that because I see other operators, sponsors in this area, keep the cap rate the same. And I just, I, I don't agree with that because to me, that's juicing the returns a little bit. Right. Um, Population. So we talked about population statistics, any section eight in the property or is it all self-pay? 
No, no Section 8 on this property. Um, I'm not really a fan of government programs, uh, to be honest with you, just because, you know, I don't want to deal with it personally. Right. I'm right there with you. You know, you, you deal with Section 8, you're getting in the bed with the government is what it is at the end of the day. Right. And they, they dictate your property and they have a little bit more, quote unquote, ownership or control over it. So I definitely get you there. And same Let's thing start- with, um, you know, the, there we see a bunch of, um, you know, low income properties where you're restricted on how much rent you could charge. So I personally yep. don't underwrite these deals either. I just skip them. Yeah. And we don't really look too heavily at them either. You know, we had a, a group of brokers that we built a good relationship with and they brought, we were one of 10 groups they brought an off market opportunity to. And I kind of just, you know, I looked at it and I didn't really pursue it too much because it was in a lower income area. It was majority section eight. And, you know, there's a cap on income on where that property, the potential can be pushed to, which caps us off as well and caps our returns. Right. Looking at debt on the property. Are you guys, did you, I, I know it's probably a no on this first one. Did you pay cash? Did you do bridge? Did you do agency? What was the plan there as far as uh, lending goes? Yeah. So we got agency debt, uh, Freddie Mac, SBL, because it's uh, it's uh, a smaller loan. And we ended up getting 3.49% uh, interest rate on it, which is, you know, in, in my opinion, that's great. So 3.49 interest rate, seven year uh, loan term with a two year interest only period. Awesome. But yeah. one thing I've noticed, by the way, is that right uh, right now we're underwriting more deals. It seems like no property is working out um, in the underwriting with agency debt because we, we can't meet the debt service coverage ratio. So every time I underwrite a deal nowadays, it seems like I'm almost forced to just underwrite with bridge debt. That seems to be the only way for us to make the or deals work. Pushes the LTV super low where you're, you're at 60 or 65% LTV and it defeats right. the purpose of the program. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So what, so what else, as you guys now underwrite this deal, you're putting together your debt piece, uh, you know, you, you have this thing uh, that's going under contract. Was there, you had mentioned you like the location a lot. Was there anything else that stood out in the underwriting process as you evaluated the property, positive or negative? Um, yeah, I mean, what we noticed is that, you know, so we had a property manager that is in the area, you know, they gave us, so we, we get the debt quote, we also get a property management quote, just to kind of understand what they could or could not do. One of the things that the property manager at the time told us is, look, um, you know, on this property, once you fix it up, once you renovate the units, you're probably going to end up raising the rents by 100 to $125. And so we kind of, you know, use that for our underwriting. Once we close on the property, now they're actually raising the rents $100 per unit before we do any renovations even. So and that kind of plays back to the market and the occupancy. And that's, that's kind of one of the things I focus on because the market is so good. We really haven't even had to do anything yet to the property and we're still getting much, much higher rents, which is incredible. Uh, but besides that, I mean, the main things that I liked about this deal is is just the market and i like the occupancy i like the job opportunities nearby and that's really what made us go after it pretty aggressively even though it was not an easy deal to go through especially with our first one so we learned a lot of things but i'm, I'm glad we went through it and now on the future deals we're looking for similar criteria when it comes to submarkets. yeah and uh talk about the psa so purchase and sale agreement yeah uh, you, you mentioned the owner was difficult uh how did that go I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. We'll have to delay the release. Is it, did you get the deal signed? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, thankfully we closed now, but yeah, so it was, yeah. it was a little, yeah. it was a little tough to be honest with you. Uh, and I think that's probably common with smaller deals because you're not dealing with say, you know, a big 
big time syndicator or purchaser. Sophisticated um, investor, so to speak. Right, exactly. It's more like a mom and pop sort of situation. But yeah, I mean, we, so the, uh, the PSA, we obviously, we went through the LOI process. Then we went back and forth for a while, actually longer than usual, about two weeks, I think it was before we finally agreed on the PSA and got it signed. But I mean, one of the things we learned in that is that it's super important to have a good attorney with you because, um, you know, they have to watch out for things that you might not even think would happen. And we've had things pop up that we're like, oh, thank God we had that in the PSA. Yeah. And I mean, the, when you look at a PSA, it's like looking at something in a different language and, and your attorney's the translator is what it comes down to. And he's going to tell you what to look out for and what to, you know, be aware of. And, you know, we experienced that as well. Right. And something we didn't ask, what was the hold period on this deal? Is this a five year, seven year? What's the hold period you guys have on this? Yeah. So it's going to be a three to five year hold. Um, we got a seven year loan just just to be on the safe side, just in case we needed a little extra time. Um, exactly the prepayment penalty is going to probably be like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the prepayment penalty is probably going to be like 1% uh, if we sell at year five, which is fine. I mean, that's $50,000 probably. Uh, and you have all this extra cushion room safety in case you need to extend it safe. Anything happens to the market. Do I expect anything to happen to the market? I do. I expect the market to go up, but you can't really, I mean, you, you don't know. What if things happen? At least you have that extra time period in there. Yeah. And I think you made a great point. And that's kind of where I was going is if this is a five-year hold and you put a seven-year term on it, there's two reasons. A, those two years of interest only, or B, just a cushion and protection. Because what if Absolutely. there was a coronavirus that happened at year five and you guys just right, didn't feel pandemic. comfortable selling? Right. <laughs> you, you just never know. And that cushion That'll gives never you happen. options. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it, it gives you cushions. It gives you options to hold on to the deal Look right. either A for other debt options or B just wait wait for another you know for a seller or a uh, a purchaser to come to the deal. Now, no, absolutely. So a few things you touched on. You said Freddie SBL small balance loan is what that stands for. For those that are unaware, agency debt, thirty year amortization. You have two years of interest only. Now you talked about the prepayment penalty. It sounds like you guys are doing a step down instead of a yield maintenance. Is that correct? Correct. So it's uh, it's basically so. For those that don't know what that means, it basically goes down from 5% to 4% to 3% to 2% and then to 1% as time goes on. Uh, and in this case, if we sell at year, um, I think if we sell at year three or three or, or four, it's 2%. Then if we sell at year five, six or seven, it's 1%. So is that an accelerated step down or is that a normal step down? Did you guys have to pay additional to get that step down or is that just the one the lender gave you right away? No, it's just the, actually it's just the one the lender gave us. We did end up prepaying some of the interest up front because we were at, initially we were at 3.59 interest. Um, so we paid off uh, some points and we got it down to 3.49. Okay. Understood. Very good. And loan to value. We were just talking about this a few moments ago. We were saying how agency deals are much harder to put on two properties right now because to meet the debt service coverage ratio, you right. have to have a, a larger amount down to meet that. And right. some deals we're seeing is 60 all the way up to 70, maybe 75 on deals for agency lending. Luckily, we're, right. we're getting about 75 for the deal we're doing, which we're super happy about. You know, That's how I gauge if it's a good deal or bad deal. The higher the LTV, most likely the better the deal can be, but without being too over leveraged. What did you guys pull for LTV on this project? So we got a 80% 80, 80 uh, loan uh, on this deal. I will say this, I've noticed that on the other deals that we're underwriting right now, it seems like the market has changed very, very significantly since, uh, since March or April. 
Um, so okay. one of the things we've noticed so far, you know, since we closed on this deal, since we got this deal on your contract is right now agency that is not working on any deals. Anytime we underwrite a deal and we put 80 percent, you know, loan to value on it, we get a one percent, one, one point zero percent debt service coverage ratio and that doesn't work you need to be at 1.25 1.3 in some cases and so that's kind of why we've been pushed to try to use bridge loans and actually i spoke with a bunch of lenders and they're saying you know what a boss we're noticing the same thing on almost every deal out there it's kind of they're calling it the year of the bridge debt because of that mm, interesting okay yep what about for property management what did you guys do how did you guys find them um, what are they charging you yeah, so actually property management, we had a kind of a weird situation. At first, we were uh, we were going with one property management company, and what happened is they would not change the contract to meet the lender requirements because they have they have a contract where if you end up firing them, um, you have to pay the rest of the year off. You know, at, at the minute you fire them, and the lender did not accept that for a Freddie Mac SBL loan, and so they ended up rejecting that. And so we ended up uh, choosing a different property management company that that was kind of uh, another option that we were thinking about. So we ended up going with them and uh, they've been performing amazingly well. I think when it comes to property management, one of the things we've learned so far is that you have to know some, you have to pick somebody that knows the area really well. Um, and also somebody that's going to make some time for you, because I noticed with some of the larger ones out there, the ones that have, say, 20,000 units, 25,000 units, it's super hard to speak to anybody uh, to to help you out with things. And, and that's kind of that was kind of hard for us to deal with. So this property management we're working with, they have 3000 or 3500 units under management. They know the area super well. In fact, the owner's office is just a few minutes away from this property. And that was kind of like a natural choice for us. Okay. And with this small of a property, were they doing on-site property management or is it more of like a hybrid model where they didn't really have someone on site? Was there payroll involved? Yeah, no, they are. So, so we have one full-time maintenance and uh, one full-time uh, on-site, uh, you know, manager as well. Okay. And are they ch- charging you a percentage of gross rents or are they on a payroll plus a percentage of gross rents? How are they charging you guys? Yeah. So they're charging, uh, they're charging three and a half percent. On this deal, which is, you know, for that size of a deal, that's actually, to be honest with you, I think that's pretty incredible. With any payroll in there for uh, maintenance and onsite or just yeah, so we, Yeah. So no, we have to, we have to pay for payroll separately as well for okay. the onsite staff. Yep. Okay. Understood there. And talk to us a little about the uh, scope of renovation work you guys plan on doing to the property interior, exterior, if any, what does that look like? Yeah. So the first thing that we're prioritizing is the exterior, because if you think about it, anytime you're underwriting or you're evaluating, um, renovating the interior, you have to wait for people to move out of the property. And so in the meantime, while people and, you know, right now the occupancy is high, all the units are full 100 percent. And so what we're focusing on in the meantime is just fixing the exterior issues, fixing the landscaping, uh, adding some gutters in there. One of the buildings had uh, small foundation issues that we're fixing as well. Um, so just a bunch of different things, uh, upgrading the office a little bit, adding a bathroom. So we're doing all the exterior things. And as people move out of these units, you know, our plan is to renovate these uh, one by one. But one of the things we've noticed is that although we've been wanting to renovate some of the units, we're noticing that we are able to charge a higher rent before we even renovate. And so we haven't even needed to do that yet. But at some point, we will start doing that once we're done with the exterior renovations. Okay. And what are you guys spending on price per unit, whether that is uh, a price per unit for exterior and interior or a price per unit for interior that's allocated into that actual unit? 
Yeah. So if you average it out for the whole uh, for the whole property, we're at forty. I believe we're at forty five hundred per door. Um, thankfully, we got a fifty thousand dollar credit from the seller at closing, which is which was great. So forty five hundred per door. But if we are renovating a unit, you know that probably comes out to six thousand for the renovation of the interior because you know you got to think about it. You got you have to upgrade the appliances. You have to you know, change the countertops, paint it, change the flooring and all that sort of stuff. So it kind of adds up to about $6,000 per, per unit, but we're not upgrading all the units. I mean, some of the units are already upgraded or they already have um, things that have been added on with diamonds. So we're not doing the whole thing. And what triggered that credit? Was that something that the seller did on a mistake on their behalf or what triggered that credit to you guys at closing? So that was the foundation issue that we did not realize before we got under contract. And so we went back to the seller. We're like, you know what? There are other minor things that we're willing to work with, but the foundation issue, we're going to have to spend X amount of dollars on it. And so, you know, we negotiated that $50,000 credit, which is, you know, which is great. Uh, the attorney worked uh, on that really well for us and it turned out to be phenomenal. So that leads me to a question here. A, at what point was that found? And what contingencies did you guys have in place or was your money hard day one so they could have just said you know too bad so sad take the property as is or walk and we keep your deposit yeah so we were actually going to go through the deal either way whether we get the credit or not um because you know whenever we're underwriting we always have a cushion just for unexpected problems because you know you're probably going to have unexpected things anyway in every property um, on this particular deal, what happened is our money was hard day one, right? But as we went back to talk to the seller about it, you know, we're like, look, we have this foundation issue. It's unexpected. And this was discovered during the due diligence period, by the way, when we were doing due diligence, the property management company sent out a team and, and they did all that work for us. So they discovered this foundation issue. We went back to the seller, we, you know, and we presented it and he was like, okay, well, I'll offer you guys $50,000 for that. And we had to kind of go back and forth. Obviously it wasn't that easy. We had to go back and forth on it, but he ended up accepting it. But if he would have said no and he would have stuck with that, you know, to be honest with you, he would have stuck on with the deal because the numbers made sense either way. Well, it's good. It's good that you guys got the credit and you're able to do that. And it sounds like, like you said, you had a good attorney that worked on all of that for you. Oh, yeah. And what what was your due diligence period and your close period? So typically for those that are unaware in the purchase and sale agreement, you typically have an inspection period or due diligence period. And then you, right. after that, you have a, a period until closing. What did you guys have as far as uh, dates or times? So we had a 60 day closing period. And then we had, so this is interesting. We had two extensions at 15 days each and every extension would, uh, would have an increased deposit amount of uh, $15,000. Here's the thing, we never thought we would need those extensions, but we put them in the contract and we actually negotiated that up front because we thought, you know what, yeah, you know, things might happen, let's put the extensions in there anyway. So we got, uh, we got the extensions and it turns out when we were getting close to closing, the lender was having issues because Freddie Mac was taking much longer than usual to respond and get the file back and all that sort of stuff. So we actually had to use the first extension and then they went out, they sent us some more requirements for things to do. You know, they wanted, uh, they wanted an engineer to look at the foundation issues, which he did. But that took a while to schedule and get somebody out there, get the report back, send it over to them. So we actually ended up using both extensions. And uh, that was something we never thought we would have needed. So it was, it was great for us to have that. So I think, I think it's important to try to see if, if you could get an extension in there just in case you need it. Because if we would have only had 60 days, we would have been in trouble. 
Yeah. I mean, I think that's really good. That's a good contingency plan you guys put in there. You put yeah. those two extensions in there of 15 days each with hopes and, and that you guys wouldn't have to use them, but here right. they are that it just ended up working out that they were available to you because if you guys were over 60 days, the seller could cancel the contract, keep your deposit. Another right. offer could come in, they could accept it. And there goes all that hard money that you guys put in uh, on a purchase price like this. What was that hard money? So we ended up putting a uh, hundred and fifty thousand. Wait, what, hold on. Let me think about that. No, seventy-five thousand dollars on this deal. Okay. All right, seventy-five. 75 and then you said sixty days to close. Were you guys doing a thirty-day uh, DD period? Correct. Okay. Very good. And was this a five hundred six B or C offering that you guys offered? Yeah. No, it was a five hundred six B. We had uh, we had uh, quite a few actually um, sophisticated investors, and we have. Plenty, obviously, also for credit investors. So I think I think that was very helpful that we could tap into sophisticated investors by having it be a 506B uh, deal. Yeah, I think that's good, especially like you said, it's your first deal. You know, you don't right. have this massive uh, CRM or portal of accredited investors. You got to build up right. that that experience piece and start networking, which I know you're very good at. And so I'm sure you guys will be doing 506 C deals in the future here at some point. And actually that's really, you know, you touched on that, um, you know, not having a, a large database. Now we realize how important it is to go out there and just constantly build your database for that next deal. So that way, you know, once you get a deal, you've got all this money ready and you could, you don't have to worry about that as much. So we, we learned a lot on this deal and we learned, we knew now what we're not good at and what we're good at and what areas we need to improve. So that was extremely helpful. And so since then, one of the things I've been working on constantly is just growing that database literally day and night. And I've been able to grow it pretty significantly since then, but it's interesting. Awesome. I like that. So yeah. I believe you said purchase price was 6.5 million, correct? Correct. Okay. What were you guys raising for capital on this deal? What was the total dollar amount you guys needed to close? Yeah, so two million, uh, two million and eight thousand was what we needed. Okay, and, and what kind of buckets do those allocate towards? So, how much of it went towards down payment, renovations, closing costs, and then we'll get into uh, the GP fees in a moment. Sure. So, uh, one point six five down payment, two hundred and eighty four thousand for the uh, for the. Um, Renovations and on a on a Freddie Mac SPL, by the way, one of the things um, to keep in mind is that they don't finance their renovations, so we had to raise that separately because um, right. it's unfinanced rehab. And then obviously we had closing costs that was fifty six thousand. Uh, I'm sorry, not closing costs, working capital of fifty six thousand as well. And then we had the closing costs of the property. So it all you know all comes out to to uh, two million and eight thousand. We ended up raising two million. And uh, eighty-eight thousand, just because we want to have a little room, just in case you know some extra things come up that we haven't expected. And so far, thankfully, we haven't really had any unexpected events yet. But you know, you never know. Right? No, you guys again that contingency plan there on a uh, Freddie SBL. Roughly those closing costs, whether it's a percentage or of the loan or dollar amount, what did that look like? If you don't know offhand, that's fine. Sure. No, I actually pulled it up because I knew you were probably going to ask that. Three point four five percent. Three point four five percent. No stone unturned. <laughs> no stone turned. Now, 3.45%. in those five percent. Yep. Does that include uh, prepays into your escrow accounts for taxes and insurance? Correct. Correct. Okay. Um, and uh, and then also the uh, the, uh, the COVID uh, reserve. COVID. Well, the COVID reserve is actually that's a separate. That's one hundred and fourteen thousand. That comes back in the second year. But I was going to say the closing cost of 3.45%, that does include 1% of the acquisition fee. 
Oh, okay. Interesting. Yep. So let's kind of get into fees a little bit there. So you said 1% acquisition fee. So for those that are unfamiliar, that is the fee paid to the general partnership for finding the deal, doing due diligence, putting the funding together and all the tasks that are no easy task, Abbas, correct? Right. Oh, no. No. <laughs> what about other fees, asset management, disposition, refinance? Did you guys charge any of those? Yeah. So, um, so we had, let's see, a 1.5% uh, asset management fee. Normally you see that anywhere between, you know, two to 3%. So we're charging 1.5%. And then the final split is uh, 16 to the GPs, 84% to the LPs. And usually that's anywhere between 20 to 30%. I've seen people do 35% as well, but we, we were charging 16% um, split. Okay. So talk to us a little bit about that. Was there a preferred return or was it a straight split and what brought you guys to that split? Yeah, no, it's just a straight split. Um, that's the way the Brad Summerock model is. It's, you know, he doesn't do any of that. Uh, he doesn't do preferred returns, just straight splits. But having said that, the reason we chose that is we wanted to, you know, the point of this deal really is not for us to make money. The point of this deal is to establish our reputation and establish our record for future deals. And so really it was kind of irrelevant what we charge. We just want to charge a, you know, an amount that would make the, the investors happy and get them higher returns. And that's kind of why we chose to go with 16%. Okay. And was there, and you're saying, you're saying 16 is in one six. Correct. Okay. Okay, so that makes make sense. Make sure I heard it correctly. Yeah, not 60. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> okay. No. So with fees, with the return structure that you guys have here, there's some key metrics that a lot of syndicators or investors look at for the deal. I'm sure you know where I'm going with this. Yep. What were those metrics that you guys looked at for the five-year hold period or three to five year, I should say, with that initial investment? I'm assuming it was 50,000 minimum? Correct. Okay. What were those return metrics? Talk to us a little about those. Sell us on them, boss. Sure. <laughs> so on the deals that we're looking at, uh, what we're looking at in terms of returns is we want, you know, over a five-year period, we want the returns to be um, over 75% and in terms of total returns. And we want at least, um, you know, 7% plus in cash flow. On this deal specifically at five, um, at five years, it's 102% total returns and 9.5% uh, cash flow. So it actually exceeded our minimum returns by a very, very long margin or big margin. So it, it sounds like you said 102% returns overall. Is that correct? Correct. On this so deal specifically. It, right. On this deal. So it sounds like doubling your money. So that'd be about a, a two point and change equity multiple, correct? Just about. Yep. Okay. And what was this penciling out for as far as uh, uh, internal rate of return? Uh, let me find that. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. So it was 22% IRR. Okay. That's great. And yep. it, it seems like you guys have a pretty strong split there. You didn't have, you know, a disposition fee or anything like that. That definitely no, helps. No. Yep. What about, so you mentioned the cash on cash. Is that an average cash on cash strictly just with cash flow for the life of the project? Correct. So on this deal, um, it's 9.5% annualized over five years. Obviously, in some years, it's a little higher. Some years, it's a little lower. But um, on average, it's going to come out to right about 9.5%. Now, again, our goal, obviously, is to exceed that as much as possible. So that's kind of on the conservative estimate. Okay. And it seems so, like we're going to based on current results we're seeing, to be honest with you. You know, that's good. That's great. I mean, nothing better than a, a project starting up strong and give you guys confidence to keep moving through. Absolutely. So you said you purchased this at how much per door? So 101,000 per door. 
Okay, 101,000 per door. Based off your exit cap rate, your exit NOI, where do you guys plan on being as far as sale price per door? So it's it's so based on our our exit cap rate, it's it's going to sell at 8.4 million dollars. And so if you take 8.4 million dollars, you get a calculator out, you divide it um, over 64 units, that's going to be 131,000 per door. Okay, so, so that's pretty modest. You're looking at a 30,000 additional. Uh, dollars per unit on the sale price. And Correct. if you divide that by now, what year, realistically, what year do you guys plan on disposing of the asset roughly? Yeah, I mean, probably, I mean, it's probably going to happen between three to five years for sure. Um, we're, I don't, I, it's highly unlikely for us to keep it for seven years. It's also probably unlikely for us to keep it for five years, to be honest with you. Um, so if we see that we're hitting all the returns that we needed uh, in year three, we're just going to go ahead and, and get it on the market. Okay. So $30,000 premium per unit from where you purchased that to where you sold it at. Let's say right. we meet in the middle at that three to five year, that four year, you know, that's a modest $7,500 increase in unit value per year. So, you right. know, that seems very tangible. Something right there, if I was a passive investor, is not a red flag. It tells me it's a realistic goal. You guys aren't pushing anything or juicing returns. If you told me it's going to be, you know, 202 a door, you guys are going to double right. the value. I, I probably question it a little bit, but that's <laughs> Sorry, a little more worried. Exactly. Um, no, I, I think that that's great. I, we, we covered a lot a boss. Great job going over I all the nitty gritty and the deal. I, DJ, did you have any other questions for a boss? on his deal before we head into the next section of the show? No. So, uh, boss, I've done several uh, passive investments. So as, uh-huh. as we look at something like this, you know, for us, like Dante saying, you know, we've learned over time, uh, not just through our active efforts, but through our passive efforts to make sure we're asking questions like on the exit cap rate and Dante and I will actually review deals as they come up and we keep our eye on other investors and what they're doing and so on. So, That's you know, awesome. this one's solid. Um, yeah. You know, I think you guys have done a really nice job on this and uh, it sounds like a great asset and we certainly wish you the best of luck with it. Well, I appreciate that, DJ. You know, one of the things I will say is that one of the things I keep in mind anytime I'm underwriting a deal is that a lot of my friends, a lot of my family members, a lot of uh, my past clients are going to be investing in this in, in these deals I put out. And what matters more than the money, because really to me, I don't even think about the money when I'm underwriting these deals. What matters is what are people going to think of me if this deal doesn't work out, right? So I always kind of keep that in mind because a bad deal will ruin your reputation for forever, probably if, if you if you do it for the wrong purpose. Now, obviously things happen. And if, if that, you know, if things go out of order by accident or things you didn't expect, that's, you know, I think people are more understanding of that. But people are trusting you and they're, they're putting your, their money with you because they, you know, a lot of people don't really understand multifamily. They're not interested in understanding multifamily. They're just doing, the, you know, they're investing in these deals because they know you personally, they trust you personally. And so I always keep that in mind as we're underwriting deals. Yeah. And we find the exact same thing. Um, so certainly we're excited uh, about it and to help others grow their wealth. At the same time, it's an investment. And I think we have that responsibility to say it is an investment. And here's how the numbers pan out at this time. Right. Uh, you know, we we can control pieces of this, but 100% of this in terms of market conditions, I, I don't know. We enter World War III. Who knows? Pandemic. 
right. you know, there are things out there out of our control. Those will affect uh, investments, whether they're stock market, whether they're multifamily and so on. So um, 100%. yeah, so it, just getting real with people, I think, and being honest with them at the, you know, we don't want to point out the, you know, or, or be complete doomsayers either, right? Right. We, no. from an equity raise standpoint, we walk a fine line, but uh, that's right. Yeah. We, we can't just talk about the great aspects of it. And certainly I think there's many, uh, but Absolutely. getting real with people is important. 100%. Yeah. Great job, boss. Best of luck to you on your deal. Hey, Dante, you go, thank you so much. Yeah. Before you go, we're just going to hit you some quick questions, curious cues. I think I threw them at you last time, but we'll get oh, them yeah. again for those that didn't listen. Uh, and I don't think po- anything's changed since then, by the way. <laughs> All right. Let's, well, let's hear them again. So uh, favorite <laughs> podcast you enjoy listening to? Uh, I really don't listen to podcasts, to be honest with you. Okay. I should listen sense. to yours more often, by the way. I should listen to yours more often. <laughs> well, I hope this will finally change after two times being on the show. You'll start listening to it. <laughs> That's right. Favorite book you enjoy reading? Oh, favorite book. Uh, good to great, I would say. It's, it's one of my favorite books out there. Okay. Biggest hurdle in real estate you've had to overcome? Biggest hurdle, biggest hurdle. You know, to be honest with you, I, I really don't think about problems that way because we're I'm, I'm constantly having different issues and I never really think about these issues. I just move through them. I solve them and I move on to the next thing. I really don't kind of think about, hey, you know what? I had this problem because I don't want to think negatively like that. Okay. So, so just kind of use them as building blocks. Yeah. I mean, I would say, I mean, everything is a challenge really, to be honest with you. And so you know, it's, it's hard for me to pinpoint one specific thing, because if I look back, I'm like, I don't have any, you know, any issues, but the reality is if I look back through my days or months, I'm sure I've had a lot of issues come up, but I just don't think about it that way. Right. Right. Favorite non-real estate related hobbies. What are you doing in your free time? Yeah, man. Uh, nothing really. <laughs> I just do real estate. I just enjoy doing real estate. I enjoy building my business. So recently I've been, um, uh, I've been focusing a lot on videos and video production. So I actually set up a studio and uh, I've been enjoying doing that a lot. I've been talking making videos about sales because that's kind of, that's what I do um, in my, in my main business is, is sales and uh, you know, all that sort of stuff, real estate. So right now producing a lot of videos on that, that I'm going to flood the internet with very soon. Awesome. Looking forward to that content and yeah. uh, new, newbie advice. So what advice would you give to someone that's looking to get started? I would say, you know, learn from others that have done it. You know, I, I'll tell you this before getting into, for example, the Brad Summer coaching program, I would have never thought I would be doing things like the things I'm doing right now because I was thinking too small and that was, mm. uh, that was problematic. So I would say instead of spending years of, of your life trying to learn it the hard way or going from, you know, the initial steps and building up the, the blocks, I would say just learn from someone who's already done it, who's already super successful at it and save yourself literally decades of, of, of learning. Mm, okay. Awesome. And Abbas, if someone wants to get in contact with you or even invest with you, how can they get a hold of you? Um, the easiest way is to email me a boss that is a B B A S a boss at the com. And if they want to call me, it's 408-609-9178. Awesome. Great work, Abbas. We appreciate you taking the time out of your day to uh, well, join us. I appreciate us. you having me on, man. Of course. Until next time. Good All right. Stuff. We'll see ya. Take care. See ya. Thanks for listening. We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.